Okay, you're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Matter, your host. I've got Michael Barnard on the program today. Michael is um, with the company The Future is Electric, and uh, Michael is a Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your background and what brought you to the environmental space and uh, what your company, The Future is Electric, does. Uh, sure. So about uh, 30 years ago, I was a pretty hardcore environmentalist. Um, you know, my, uh, my degree from the University of Toronto included a minor in environmental studies. Um, and, you know, I've always paid attention to the space. But I was also cognizant that I didn't have the personal attributes to be successful because I cared too much. Uh, it's one of those things where I pissed more people off than I actually delivered, you know, effective group movement forward. And so I, you know, pivoted to, I stayed in computers and technology and, you know, became a global solutions architect and systems engineer with the, you know, one of the biggest tech firms in the world, had architectural and leadership positions in North America, Latin America, and Asia. Um, and always on the sideline was researching, studying, learning more and engaging in environmental things, um, but not as a direct thing. Um, since about 2010, I've been trying to get, I tried to get a major firm to pivot, to be much more focused in the space, failed miserably. Uh, so, you know, in, but I engaged with solar projects in uh, Japan. I engaged with wind projects in Northern Quebec through the firm um, on the you know other side, um, engaged with utilities around the world and eventually just decided to, it was a, time to leave the company and strike out on my own and make it my, you know, a direct avocation, hundred percent of my, my days. And so I did that. Um, and, you know, since about uh, 2010, I've been publishing constantly assessing solutions across the entire space of climate solutions, assessing climate problems globally, reading the literature, reading the studies, engaging with people like Mark said, Jacobson out of Stanford. Um, you know, I've spent time with, um, climate scientists around the world. I spent time with uh, PhDs in machine learning who spend their days working on climate solutions using machine learning technologies. Through TFIE strategy, however, uh, not being that deep a nerd, but being a very deep nerd um, and having a long history of communicating with people who aren't nerds, um, bridging the gap, doing English to English translation, in other words, I, I bring the context for what will actually work based on the fundamentals of science, physics, chemistry, uh, economics, something else I studied, both behavioral and classical, um, and cognitive science as solutions and help uh, major institutional investors, VCs, um, invest their money wisely this decade so that it's actually useful next decade and the decade after. And I uh, sit on a couple of uh, startup boards um, of firms which I consider to be very high value and I assist them to understand where to skate to, where the puck will be rather than, you know, what the hype is today. Okay, well, that's quite a bit. Um, I guess in terms of uh, what your company does uh, specifically, are you advising major institutional investors as to how they should uh, invest their money? Is that the primary focus of the future is electric? Um, yeah, the, there's a lot of people pushing the governments, um, and I've certainly, but I, I've had absolutely no success um, in engaging with governmental efforts. And it's 
domestic, as you know, much more personally than I do, Matt, um, all politics are domestic. All politics become very personal. All politics are very retail. And so there's a very interesting thing. Uh, I have a better luck because of the nerdiness of the way I approach things, dealing with capital folks, with money folks. And there's an awful lot of money that's looking to invest wisely in the global transformational opportunity we're in the middle of. Um, we have to decarbonize our entire economy over the next 80 years or so. And we have to do a lot of the heavy lifting in the next 15 years. Um, and so institutional investors are getting lobbied by a lot of people who are promoting stuff which is of less value. Um, and they are being engaged with by people you know, who have a vested interest. Uh, I, as an independent, have no vested interest. I just go where the data actually leads. And I speak to a broad range of people um, to assist me to understand what is and isn't. And I publish and then I get beaten up if I'm wrong. And so that's led me to the attention of people like Jigger Shaw, who's uh, currently the director of the loans program office of the U.S. Department of Energy, formerly the founder of Sun Edison, you know, one of the more successful solar deployment firms in the United States. And, you know, speaking to him um, about how they're deploying their $40 billion in investments, it led me to speak through Jeffrey's Bank. I think it's the sixth biggest investment bank in the world through to 200 of their institutional investor clients globally, probably at minimum worth about $500 billion worth of funds. And I was debating in that case, small modular nuclear reactors with a woman who was the um, US, the UK deputy secretary, secretary of nuclear security and currently does um, uh, a lot of fiscal and economic assessments of nuclear in the space. And so, um, I engage to try to help capital spend itself more wisely because there's a lot of money out there. Well, tell us, uh, now that you brought up the small nuclear reactors, uh, where where do you fall on that issue? Are you pro or con? Just kind of give us the, the uh, high-level view, and then we can drill down as needed. Sure. Uh, small modular reactors um, have mostly been around since in the 50s and 60s in scale. Um, original nuclear reactors were that size. They were uneconomic for physics reasons. Thermal generation likes to be big, right? That's why coal plants and nuclear plants tend to be gigawatt scale. Um, small modular reactors are kind of throwing that away with the hope that they can turn into a manufactured object, more like wind turbines, but still pretty big. Um, the challenge is when I talk to people like Professor Bent Fluvberg, who is the Oxford Chair of Major Program Management and who has studied nuclear failures globally um, in terms of project management. He's an expert in project management. Um, it takes, you have to have dozens of things built before the, um, the curve, the experience curve or rights law kicks in. So it's going to take a lot of building them before they start doing it. And there's about 18 different designs of them extant right now. So there's a lot of competition in the space. So the odds that any one of them are going to be successful is low. Um, what I assert is that it's going to take a major country like the United States or China or uh, the ASEAN organization in um, the Southeast uh, in Asia to pick a single design as a national strategy and double down on it as a moonshot technology. In other words, it's out of the hands of finance people. It's out of the hands of in, uh, institutional investors. It's in the hands of policymakers. And that is going to be uniquely dependent upon um, uh, different geographies. I, I don't suspect they'll succeed in the United States because um, the 
ability of the United States to engage in moonshots um, deployment of energy is quite low these days for structural reasons, which you probably know quite um, as well as I do. So, so I tell institutional well, investors, yes, leave it aside for 15 years, let the policymakers figure it out. Well, I guess that's a, an interesting question. I generally am a little concerned when government picks the winners because uh, they're not always the best at picking winners. And though the market mm -hmm. isn't perfect in that regard either, uh, yep. it, it might, the, the government's advantage is that it could help push it faster, which is very important in this situation, uh, but it may get it wrong. And then we've yep. got a, a bunch of reactors that uh, aren't optimal. So, uh, yep. so are you generally <laughs> pro-nuclear? Are you generally pro-nuclear and that uh, we should be investing uh, in the US as well as countries all over the world in creating more no nuclear reactors? Uh, I'm ve very happy for every nuclear reactor China turns on. Uh, I think that they're mostly a diversion from building what works and is scalable, reliable, and, and repeatable today, which is wind, solar, transmission, and storage. Um, you know, there's only about 30 nuclear generation countries in the world, the developing nations have to jump through about 20 major IAEA hoops, including massive subsidies of security for nuclear supply chains, uh, waste streams and sites. And, and those constraints don't apply to wind, solar transmission and storage. And, and so I tend to say that um, nuclear is something that I would prefer the United States kept their fleets going. I would prefer that Germany had kept, made the decision to keep their nuclear fleets going and ditch their coal. I'm glad that China's building it. I think it's a bit of a distraction otherwise. Right. Well, that is the big problem with nuclear is that it keeps getting more expensive per kilowatt produced uh, rather than uh, wind and solar keep getting cheaper to produce per kilowatt. Uh, so, which is kind of uh, backwards. You would think that nuclear would get less expensive over time, but it's actually getting more expensive. So. Uh, a little bit counterintuitive, I guess, because of all the regulatory issues and safety issues, as you just described, it is quite a bit more complex than putting up a solar array or a wind farm. So we'll be back in just a minute uh, with our guest, Michael Barnard. Uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America, and we'll be back uh, to talk to Michael about uh, the future is electric and how he sees it playing out over the next uh, few decades. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Batten, your host, and I've got Michael Barnard on the program. Uh, Michael's with The Future is Electric, and we were just talking about nuclear power and uh, the future of nuclear power in this country. And, and Michael, I think uh, if I'm correct, your position is that it would require a national strategy here in the U.S. and kind of a top-down approach to uh, saying, hey, we need X amount of reactors, say, let's just say 50 reactors across the country. We're going to use one design and we're going to kind of cut some of the red tape and say every state gets one or, or something along those lines. And, uh, and it's going to happen. And it's going to happen here. And um, we're going all systems uh, go. Um, is that kind of what you're saying? And um, what's the likelihood of something like that happening? 
Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we have to look back at history of the successful nuclear deployment programs. Uh, they've been national strategic initiatives. They've picked a single design. They've gone for a limited period of time, 20 to 30 years. So the staff who were able to do the work were able to keep deploying and were in that transformational and build phase, um, not an operational phase where the United States is, for example, right now. The United States is very much in an operational phase and more power to those guys and women who keep your nuclear reactors operating as well as they do because it's they're doing great work. Um, but that does mean a, a, a country has to pick a winner. Um, it's not a market decision. It's a national decision. It's like uh, if I harken back to the, the history of the United States, we go back to the foundation of the Bureau of, of Reclamation um, and the establishment of the major dams. Those part of the first New Deal and the second New Deal um, and massive amounts of electrical generation and irrigation infrastructure was built and remains federally owned. Um, uh, you know, the United States government is still one of the biggest owners, operators of electrical generation. I think it is actually the biggest um, on a individual gigawatt hours per year basis of electrical generation in the United States. Um, the New Deal seems to be being demonized um, in the United States, which you know has those of us from outside the United States scratching our heads um, because it was a very successful program that built a tremendous amount of the infrastructure, which helped make America a very successful place for decades. Um, and so, can America, are the conditions right for the United States to create a new deal? Perhaps a, what, what is, what's that favorite color these days, a green new deal? <laughs> and, and the answer is no. Um, politically, um, you know, as we look at the recent history of the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill, we see that, you know, and we know the elections are looming in um, November. There are structural reasons why there's a bit of a logjam in the United States for um, national scale progress. Um, and when I talked to Jigger uh, Shaw the other day, he was pointing to some of the successes they've got in terms of a HVDC grid up in the Northwest. Um, hopefully we're actually gonna see, we, we, you know, offshore wind is oversupplied in the Northwest, but he's hoping for small modular reactors on old existing coal plant sites, um, you know, as the great hope for nuclear in the United States, simply because it's impossible to, you know, the, the way I describe the United States is the authority to say no has devolved down too far for substantive societal strategic change. Um, you know, it's right now we look at the uh, HVDC interconnector that was coming in from Canada that was blocked yet again by people in New York State um, who were not aligned with climate goals and were arguing against something which had massive value because it obstructed their view slightly. Um, and so that devolution of the authority to say no is a significant problem that is a political problem for the United States to overcome. And I'm not sure how it's gonna do it. But as we look around the world, you know, South Korea did a great job with its program in the uh, 1990s and 2000s, except for the corruption scandals and substandard parts in the nuclear plants, which you know don't keep me awake at night, but would if I was going to be concerned about something. Um, and China's program is quite good as well. And they're trying to pick a winner and deploy it everywhere as part of their program of decarbonizing their grid. They're building a lot more wind and solar. Tell us a little bit about the HVDC and what that is and why it's important. Sure. So HVDC says, stands for high voltage direct current, um, as opposed to uh, the other stuff, high voltage alternating current. 
an alternating current. This is a back to Tesla and Edison and the great you know, electricity wars where I think it was Edison who killed an elephant on Capitol Hill with a, you know, just like a nutty, nutty experiment. Um, but direct current means it, you know, alternating current goes back and forth uh, magnetically and it goes just, and it's useful in every one of our outlets. Like if you look around um, your house and your condos and stuff, all the outlets have alternating current coming out of them. It's got a heartbeat of 60 cycles a second. You know, our appliances need to expect that. A whole bunch of stuff needs to expect that. And that's great stuff. And all of our transmission, um, a lot of our transmission inside a big grid is alternating current. But about in the 1950s, some bright Swedish people caught together and said, well, can, you know, direct current has advantages. Direct current for especially long distance transmission. And so they said, if we can make this work, and it wasn't guaranteed they could, we can push a lot more um, electricity through a wire with a lot less loss of electricity as it passes. And so that's a big advantage, a bigger pipe that loses less electricity as it goes. So high voltage direct current has matured. About 2012, we rocked the, solved the last problem with it. So now we've got robust breakers and it's being built globally in massive amounts. The longest line is about 3,500 kilometers, which is 2,600 miles or so in China, uh, from Mongolia to Beijing. Um, and there's you know lines of similar length being proposed from Morocco to the United Kingdom, um, from uh, it's one that's 5,400 kilometers from Australia to Singapore. Uh, this stuff is great because it goes underwater without losing electricity. It goes underground without losing electricity. You lose about 3.5% of the electricity over 600 miles of transport, which is better than any other mechanism for transporting energy in the world. And so it's not tied to a grid. It's already used in the United States. They call them asynchronous grid connectors. So the five grids in the United States actually have high voltage direct current linking them because it's not doesn't have a heartbeat. So you can actually do that. So HVDC is a transmission technology suitable for bringing wind in from offshore wind farms, for connecting major grids, for connecting continents, something called MedGrid in Europe, which is um, a design to bridge the Mediterranean with these high voltage direct current lines, the 600 miles across the Mediterranean to Europe. And so that Europe and Northern Africa can share in the same electricity and share renewables back and forth. It's um, a key part of broadening the grid and making uh, renewables highly viable. But once again, it comes with constraints. We were talking about you know, the uh, HVDC connector from uh, Quebec to New York State to bring down more electricity from the James Bay Hydro facility, that incredible low carbon electricity that they built and maintain as a, you know, a provincial asset. And, and that was blocked. Um, Michael Skelly's great book, Superpower. I'm not sure if you've read it, but, you know, read it and get Michael Skelly on your show. Um, was a fascinating discussion story about him trying to build HVDC from the Texas panhandle across the intervening states to the eastern seaboard to bring wind energy from where the plains to the population centers of the eastern seaboard. And he failed miserably because the United States only allows transmission to be built inside states. So it's a really interesting problem. Once again, it's that devolution of authority inside the United States. It makes it challenging. But Biden and people like Jigger Shah are trying to overcome 
by using federal rights of ways and stuff like that. And uh, what do you see, how do you think the progress is uh, coming on the front of having a, uh, a national grid that is more robust, that can handle um, the renewables more effectively and maybe has uh, more storage capacity so that uh, we don't have these brownouts and things of that nature because of uh, the variability of uh, wind and solar energy? Well, it's a really interesting problem because, um, you know, uh, Biden's original plan in his, when he was a candidate was to build a, to, to challenge the Belt and Road Initiative from China by building an HVD superconnector down through Central America to Latin America. Um, but that didn't sell domestically. You know, once again, politics being domestic and retail. And he picked up Sanders' plan, which was an HVDC supergrid using federal rights of way along rail and um, highways. Um, and then as we move forward, it's turning into a Northeast mesh. Um, and there's some other stuff, and it's kind of starting to dissolve. When Jigger is seeing his uh, loan applications, um, what he's seeing is what the local people can sell, not what is effective across larger geographical regions. And so there's some significant constraints inside the United States about bridging large geographical regions with HVDC, which are, you know, I, I, I hope are overcome. Oh, we certainly do. Uh, it's, it's crazy, the patchwork uh, politics that we have that, as you said, are impeding our ability to, uh, to solve this problem. So that, uh, as you said, the authority that allows a citizen major infrastructure changes, which benefit the entire society, uh, has kind of gotten to the point of the absurd. Uh, and we, I realize that there, there is that the uh, point where it uh, imperils our entire existence uh, that begins to think uh, this has gone too far. So anyway, you're listening to Unite and Heal America, and uh, this is Matt Mattern, your host. Uh, we've got Michael Barnard on the show, who's uh, with The Future is Electric, and uh, we'll be right back in just a minute uh, to talk to Michael a bit more about uh, these very important questions. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got Michael Barnard on the program. Uh, Michael's with The Future is Electric, and we're talking uh, with Michael about the grid and, and how um, some of the problems that uh, the Biden administration is facing in, in uh, reconfiguring the grid across the U.S. to better uh, serve uh, the growing use of renewables. Uh, so in that regard, Michael, I had a question regarding the use of hydrogen. And uh, I read a little bit about uh, some of your uh, views on hydrogen and, and whether or not it uh, could be a power source of the future. Um, it seems as though there's a bit of a disconnect between different groups within the environmental community on this. And uh, some people think that hydrogen can be uh, used uh, effectively in the future. I had uh, Dr. Jack Brower from UCI, who was a pretty big proponent of hydrogen. I've got, had Mayor Rex Paris of Lancaster, and he's done a lot with uh, the use of hydrogen and clean hydrogen. Uh, and uh, 
yet I've uh, seen you write a bit about it, saying that you didn't think uh, that it's really uh, as viable. Tell us why. Sure. Um, so first off, I'm a big fan of hydrogen. Uh, it may not come across that way, uh, but that's green hydrogen to displace the massive amount of hydrogen we already use today, which is a major climate problem on the same scale as all of global aviation. Uh, yeah, it's like hydrogen manufacturing, hydrogen today, and then a couple of its uses are as much as all of our jet travel. And that's 2019 jet travel, not you know the past couple of years. Uh, so um, there's a couple of reasons for that. When we, right now, well, 99% of hydrogen is made from natural gas or coal using steam reformation or, um, uh, or coal gasification. And that has, with the steam reformation of natural gas, that's about 12 times the mass of CO2 uh, or CO2 in equivalents as the hydrogen that's produced. So that's a lot. Um, for coal, it's worse. It's 20 to 35 times as much. So job one needs to be fixing our use of hydrogen today. Uh, luckily, that's going to be pretty easy. Let's start with why I think I have a, a lot of hope for that space. 55% um, of our pure hydrogen, about 50 million tons a year, is used in oil refineries, mostly to get sulfur out of oil uh, because sulfur causes acid rain and you know makes us sick and stuff like that. And so it's just like you know the acid rain uh, treaties that I think uh, Reagan signed with Mo Rooney back in the uh, 80s. You know, we're, we need to we need to desulfurize it. That's what it's being used for. But we're going to stop using nearly as much oil in the future. So we're going to be stopping refining as much oil. We're going to stop desulfurizing it. So that hydrogen demand is going to go down. Great news. Uh, the next big chunk, about 33 million tons a year, is used to make ammonia fertilizers. And obviously, we need fertilizers. But ammonia fertilizer has been relatively flat despite massive population growth because we're getting much better at using it. Um, and there's two or three things going on with that. Um, with the shift to low tillage agriculture, precision agriculture, and new agrogenetics for you know, nitrogen fixing, we're going to actually be diminishing our demand for ammonia-based fertilizers, which is a really good thing. So this big climate problem of manufacturing hydrogen today from fossil fuels is not as big a problem as we replace those fossil fuels with green hydrogen. Uh, but the requirement, required energy to manufacture just the hydrogen that will persist is still more terawatt hours of electricity than we manufacture from renewables today. Um, in other words, inventing new uses for hydrogen when we have a major climate problem with hydrogen is a bit of a head scratcher. So we, we have to square that circle, first circle to square. The second thing is hydrogen, green hydrogen, um, as a, so is only a store of energy. We have to manufacture it. And it's pretty inefficient as an energy store. It's a chemical, which we have to do stuff with. It, you know, we lose um, about 30% of the energy from uh, renewables. We lose it when we manufacture green hydrogen electrolyzers. Um, the normal figure is 80%. But there's a whole bunch of water vapor that's mixed in. There's actually a, another process to remove the water vapor, which takes another 10%. So it's about 70%. And then when we use the hydrogen, if we use it, um, you know, as uh, the Utah facility that um, the DOE just gave $504 million to, to, you know, put manufacture hydrogen on site, put it in salt caverns, and inject into a natural gas generators. Well, the natural gas generators, when we burn hydrogen 
in a thermal generator like that or a, a generator like that, we lose another 50%. And then storing it takes another 10%. So we're down as an energy store, we're throwing away 75% of the energy. If we use fuel cells instead, we only sell throw away 60% of the energy. Uh, whereas there are other mechanisms of storing energy that are 80 to 85% efficient, you know, uh, batteries, redox flow batteries, um, and pumped storage hydro. So as a store of energy, it's problematic. And, and as we consider it for transportation, I, I, I happen to know you have a Mariah, a little birdie told me, um, it's deeply inefficient compared to battery electric vehicles. And so, you know, my perspective is that all ground transportation will be electrified with directly grid tied or battery. And, and I point to, um, you know, 40,000 kilometers, about 30,000 miles, uh, you know, around the equator's uh, distance of high speed electrified freight and passenger rail that in China, I point to Europe where freight rail is uh, mostly electrified and increasingly electrified. Um, and, you know, that's a solved problem getting electricity to, to trains. Similarly, um, you know, for, for small, for light vehicles, um, as much as you might love your, um, you know, Mirai in California, the globally small, small vehicle, light vehicles are going battery electric, and there is no comparison. The market has spoken on that one. Um, and for heavy vehicles like trucks, um, jury might still be out, but I think when the jury comes in, it's going to be um, battery electric for those as well, for a variety of reasons. Um, so the question then is, if it's not good for energy storage and it's not good for transportation, where might we have new markets for it? Um, and, you know, and by the way, I've also done the assessment of global aviation where it's battery electric and biofuels trending. Let, fully me, let me interrupt you there for sure. a second, uh, Michael, in terms of the, uh, the battery electric, uh, I guess I have a concern that uh, factoring in all the mining that's going to be required to, uh, to create all these batteries. And from what I understand or have read, there is a question as to whether or not there's enough of the, uh, the minerals, the lithium and other uh, metals that are required to, to create these batteries. If we created a billion cars, there's a question whether or not there's enough uh, of those metals uh, to create that kind of uh, fleet of vehicles. Uh, my take is that it's a, a spurious claim made by the biggest uh, mining consortium in the, in the world, the oil and gas industry. Um, the oil and gas industry takes out vastly more fossil fuels of all types than all the batteries required for full electrification, uh, vastly more. And the earth is an absurdly big space. Um, did you know that uh, Quebec up in Canada used to be the world's leading uh, miner of lithium? Uh, back in the 50s, uh, there's still enormous amounts of lithium underground in hard rock in all sorts of places around the world. We just haven't been extracting it. It hasn't been economic. Now with higher demand, market is speaking, lots of lithium uh, is coming out. One of my people, I, one of the people I speak to is a guy named Alex Grant of uh, Jade Cove. He's a great guy. You should probably talk to him about lithium and stuff. But he's um, uh, a global lithium extraction expert and deals with um, unconventional lithium extraction. Do you know where we've got lots of lithium? It's actually in salt brines in the oil and gas fields, like the Permian Basin and up in Alberta and stuff like that. There's these massive bubbles of brine underground with lots of lithium in them that we can pull out, 
push through reverse osmosis filters, put the brine back underground and keep the lithium. And then lithium is a massively recyclable metal. When we use a lithium in a battery, we get most of the lithium back when we, re when we recycle the battery. I mean, lithium ion batteries are still relatively new to recycling. We're at a what, 30 or 50%, but we're putting them in landfills so they're easy to get. Um, and you know, lead acid batteries are massively recycled for the same reason. The lead in the, acid, in the, in the lead acid battery gets recycled and reused for new lead acid batteries. The lithium in existing batteries will get reused. Um, we have a supply disconnect. We don't have a supply shortage. Well, my understanding is that we are not uh, currently recycling or, or it's not recycling effectively uh, in a the uh, these lithium ion batteries um, uh, that are coming that are being used by these vehicles. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that front. Uh, yeah, you've been listening to the wrong. You've been listening to people who have a vested interest the other way. I would assert um, Tesla, as you know, a big one, uh, gets eighty percent recycling. Um, their major recycling initiatives going forward. It's actually a huge growth area right now, and I, you know, it's one of the things I say to people. Hey, lithium-ion recycling is a massive opportunity, and it's just getting bigger. Well, it's uh, it's certainly something that I believe we need to do. I guess uh, the question is: Is Tesla doing that profitably, or is, are they taking a loss on that? Tesla is very profitable. Well, on that particular um, piece of their operation, is um, are they? Are they personally recycling? Are they, as a company, are they recycling those batteries? Or are they outsourcing it to somebody else? They have a fairly integrated um, uh, supply chain for batteries, and they have been specifically moving, getting into direct lithium um, acquisition and mining uh, to further integrate their supply chain. Yeah, it's an integral part of their strategy to recycle their batteries. Okay, well, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America. Uh, my guest again. Michael Barnard will be back to talk to Michael in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Matter and your host, and I've got Michael Barnard on the program. Uh, Michael's with The Future is Electric. And uh, Michael, we were just talking about uh, the metals that are necessary to be uh, put into the, the batteries that, that go into electric cars. And, and you were saying that you think there is enough of it to, uh, to uh, you know, meet the needs of uh, the economy, which could grow into what a billion plus vehicles or more that uh, we have across the planet. Um, Tell me what are the, the sources of the information that you have that uh, lead you to, you know, the assertion that there is sufficient or there are sufficient heavy metals to, uh, to meet the battery needs of a growing economy? Sure. Um, so right now, it, lithium has gone through kind of two phases. It went through its bad phase of being used um, as a mood altering substance for people with um, you know, mental challenges that you know, sad, thankfully went by the wayside. And you know, that's when Quebec's industry died and for lithium extraction. But you know, as we look at the metals, we look at lithium, we look at um, uh, cobalt, we look at a few others, we look at um, stuff for the catalysts and stuff for the uh, anodes and diodes. Um, and, and the reality is, um, I'll, I'll do a compare and contrast. 
Um, do you remember when the big the big thing was peak oil supply? Um, you know, the idea was that we're going to run out of oil, and then we just kept finding more and more extractable, economically extractable resources. A lot of that was funded by the United States government, by the way. I think it was Ford in the 70s put in place the initial funding for unconventional extraction research and development. Um, and that led to the fracking boom. It led to the shale oil revolution in the United States. And it led to the point where the United States is actually a net exporter of oil as opposed to a net importer. Um, you know, people like um, uh, the guy who invented this concept of peak demand or peak supply for oil got innovation fundamentally wrong. Um, uh, you know, there's a, the world is absurdly big underneath the surface, we, the thin, tiny surface we tread. We think of the atmosphere as big, but it's this tiny film of saran wrap on this massive hunk of stone and metal with lots of stuff in it. And so the question is, um, why are we betting against innovation in extraction of the massive amounts of lithium that are in unconventional oil deposits, such as in the oil sign brines and other places? Uh, why are we betting against the innovation um, you know, that's already seen cobalt, which is a problematic metal uh, economically um, being displaced in batteries. You know, it's already down to a tiny, tiniest fraction of what it used to be in Tesla's batteries is one example. Why are we betting against new metals being brought forward for batteries? Uh, and why are we betting against non-metallic batteries, like a CO2-based battery that, I, that I'm engaged with, um, being um, brought forward as electrochemistry innovations to so solve these problems? It's the same kind of thing, asserting that we don't have enough when ge geologically we have vastly more underground than we need of any given metal, just a question of whether it's worth getting at it or not. Um, why are we asserting that we can't innovate in those spaces, but we could innovate around oil and gas? Well, certainly I'm not uh, saying that uh, we should innovate around oil and gas. Uh, that That is not my point. My point is that... Uh, based upon the studies that I've heard about, there is a question as to whether or not there is as much extractable uh, metal as would be necessary to fund a fully uh, battery-based uh, economy. So that's why I'm asking the question. And, you know, quite frankly, I mean, the answer that you've given me is a little bit too broad brush and not saying it's kind of more like have faith We'll, we'll do it. We did it before. And to me, that's not, that's not hard enough of an answer. I mean, yeah, I, I believe that we will innovate in the future, but I kind of want to know a little bit more uh, concretely, hey, we have X amount of proven reserves. Here are the places that we can get it from. It will uh, meet the uh, needs, which would be X amount of millions of tons. And uh, this is how we would extract it. And this is what the cost of extracting it would be. And this is what the environmental cost would be uh, so that we have a little bit better way to uh, analyze what you're saying and determine whether or not it, it uh, makes uh, it meets the scientific test of whether or not we should go in that direction. Because essentially you're asking us to bet uh, you and others, and, and I'm not completely disagreeing with it, but on battery technology and saying, hey, it is the future. Uh, and I'm saying, here's a, a major potential problem. And I'm not hearing 
specifics as to how we're going to actually meet it. So I guess I'll ask the question again and see if you can give me more specifics as to how you think uh, these needs of the heavy metals can be met through what is the known proven reserves versus uh, we hope, we think, we pray it'll happen in the future. Well, I, I, I'm going to answer this, you know, as carefully as I can. I alluded to, uh, so uh, we've got a problem with CO2. Um, uh, the firm I'm associated with, um, I'm a strategic advisor and a board observer. Uh, as we move through now Series A, um, technology level four, er, verging on five. So still in the lab, um, but with a, you know, a stack prototype. Uh, but it actually uses CO2 instead of lithium, instead of vanadium, instead of zinc, as the primary mech input to create a high energy storage medium. It turns it into something called a bromate. Um, won't get into the electrochemistry, won't get into the chemistry. Uh, but they're actually taking CO2, a problem, and they're storing electricity with it. Now, it's not suitable for transportation. So that's a, a very key point. But for um, all the massive amounts of grid storage we need, you know, pump storage hydro uses water and, you know, the CO2-based um, redox flow battery that Agora develops uses CO2. Uh, these are not constrained resources. Now for vehicles, um, we're already seeing substantial transformations in chemistries. We're seeing uh, lithium phosphate and uh, we're seeing iron-based batteries emerging. Um, there's, we're seeing aluminum-based batteries emerging. The point is that asking a specific question about lithium and saying, is it fit for the entire space when there are innumerable other chemistries evolving is asking the wrong question, I think. Um, if you want to debate about a specific technology today and whether it can scale to replace everything in the world, that's like saying... Um, are there enough uh, wheels that are fit for Pontiacs, um, for let's say, let's say Ford F-150s? Everybody in the world is going to drive a Ford F-150. Are there enough wheels for, Pontiac, for Ford F-150s? When the reality is, everybody in the world is going to drive different vehicles. Some are going to drive electric bikes. Some are going to be taking the trains, the high-speed electrified rail. Um, there's a lot of people like me who don't actually own vehicles at all uh, you know, because of increasing urbanization. And so... Um, if you pick a denominator, which is artificial, a billion cars, and you say, you pick a technology, a specific technology, artificially, and saying the only answer is that technology, you'll come up with bad answers. And that's a form of disinformation. Well, I, so I, appreciate, I, don't I, appre I appreciate what you're saying uh, in terms of uh, there may be innovation for other types of batteries, but until- you know, There is uh, innovation. Well, that's, that's the, a the question different is, statement. sure, there is innovation. I, I'm not saying there isn't innovation. I'm saying that with the current battery technology, the current batteries that are being used in vehicles, can we scale that out? And, um, you know, uh, that let's is turn on, let's turn. I, I think that's a reasonable question. But oh, let's, well, let's, let's turn it on pivot. its head. Uh, can, we, can we make let's enough pivot. fuel cells? We've only, we've only got two. We've only got two minutes, Michael, so I, I uh, appreciate this is a very complex conversation. It's hard yeah. to, to squeeze it into two minutes, and I appreciate what you're saying because it's, uh, it's important, and uh, we don't have all the answers yet. But uh, 
I also would say the same thing for hydrogen. You, um, I'll, I'll take the opposite point, which is that you're saying, hey, hydrogen doesn't look like it's going to work uh, as effectively, but you're kind of taking current uh, efficiency levels and not kind of baking into the cake the potential for uh, obviously uh, breakthroughs there. One of the Biden administration's goals is to get hydrogen down to $1 per kilo. And if they did, that would, that would be a, uh, maybe a more efficient technology, <clears throat> a more efficient uh, energy use than batteries uh, storing electricity in, in vehicles, correct? Um, not really, no, um, because I, I, when I do actually uh, do analyses of hydrogen, as I did for Northern Africa feeding Europe recently in a report, um, I actually give them all, give hydrogen all the benefit of the doubt. I, I actually do use uh, Lazard's uh, numbers. I give them the opportunity to have 24-7, 365 electricity firmed so that they can actually uh, leverage the capital costs of the significant chemical plant that's necessary to electrify, electrolyze uh, hydrogen at scale. And it still comes out. Um, and then you have to pressurize it, which is challenging. You have to distribute it, which is much more problematic than for other gases and liquids we use today. Um, and then you have to consume it. Um, and so every time I do the math and every time people who start with physics and chemistry do the math, uh, hydrogen becomes more and more problematic. This isn't to say that there won't be places for hydrogen. Um, I, I posit there's um, supplementing biofuels in uh, long-haul aviation and long-haul uh, marine uh, planting, but they're not a, it's not a primary thing, simply because with, we are running into the laws of physics with hydrogen. We've been extracting it and electrolyzing it for decades. We know what, what that process is, and we're already at very high efficiencies we're approaching um, maximum efficiencies today, um, and we know what it is. And so projections of substantial reduces of infrastructural costs there don't hold water when you start tearing it apart. Um, and I've had conversations with substantial with people who have been working with hydrogen for 30 years, building chemical processing plants. There's a lot of hopium, as the way I would describe it, around hydrogen and cheap hydrogen, and it starts to fall apart as you, you think about the ecosystem that's necessary to create that cheap hydrogen, what you could have instead. Well, uh, certainly we're not going to answer that question in total today, but uh, it's something that we all should be looking at. And these are important questions facing the world and uh, our economy and our policymakers and uh, us as consumers uh, as to which choices we're going to make and which technologies um, will best serve the planet going forward. So, Michael, I, I welcome uh, your point of view on the program. It's been a pleasure having you and uh, look forward to continuing engaging with you going forward so that we can come up with the best solutions because I think that uh, having robust discussions about these issues helps uh, help us come up with the best solutions. Matt, it's been a pleasure, um, and uh, you know I, I look forward to speaking with you further, and I, I wish you good luck with your Hope to Heal and Unite the United States. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Mattern. And uh, tune back in next week. And we'll be looking forward to having you uh, on the program. Thank you, Michael.